I must be the only person in the fantasy football world that hates his Scott Fishbowl team. Because you go to social media, everybody loves their team. Oh, I love this team. Oh, check my team out. Look at this team. Do you notice I haven't shared my team with social media once? Go to my Twitter feed. You won't see any Scott Fishbowl roster screenshots. Follow me at fantasy underscore mansion. You just won't see them. Because it's a horrifying team. It's truly horrific. Many of you are not familiar with the Scott Fishbowl format, and I understand why. There are 500 participants in the Scott Fishbowl Mega League, and there are more than 10 times that many that listen to this show. So talking about the Scott Fishbowl naturally alienates the majority of my audience. It's one of my frustrations with the Scott Fishbowl as an all-consuming event. Most people don't give a shit. And the problem with the Scott Fishbowl as this ubiquitously discussed event is that the lessons learned from the Scott Fishbowl can't be applied anywhere else. No other fantasy league counts first downs instead of receptions. That's what the Scott Fishbowl format is. It's standard scoring, super flex, that awards points for first downs to running backs and wide receivers and two and a half points for first downs to tight ends. So it's essentially a super flex format with standard scoring and bonuses. A standard scoring super flex format. Think about that. In a standard scoring super flex format, the quarterback has such a point premium on the field that you're required to go quarterback early. You have to. The other drafters know it, and there are no good quarterbacks available after round five. Zero. And by good, I mean productive in any way. I was very fortunate to get Brian Hoyer as my third quarterback. I got lucky. And because you get points for rushing first downs, I drafted quarterbacks that rush for first downs, Dak Prescott, Tyrod Taylor. I drafted Tyrod Taylor with Ben Roethlisberger still on the board. Go to our rankings, playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings. In the seasonal rankings, we have Ben Roethlisberger ranked higher than consensus in the top 10, but I took Tyrod Taylor anyway because he consistently finishes near the top of the league in rushing yards. And when quarterbacks scramble, they typically scramble for, you got it, first downs or touchdowns. Strangely, rushing and receiving touchdowns in this league are worth five points. No, not four, not six, not four and a half, not five and a half. The highly arbitrary five points. So again, not a format that you can transfer lessons learned to other leagues. There are no rules of thumb in the Scott Fishbowl that can be one for one applied to other leagues. So in that way, it becomes frustrating to invest time in a format that is no use to 90% of the audience. So that's why I spent zero time preparing for it, and I haven't shared my thoughts on it at all until this moment. Because looking back at my team and assessing it, I've realized I've made a colossal error. Now, I plan to start with elite wide receivers, picking at 111, just a dreadful place to draft. Went Julio Jones and Odell Beckham Jr. These are the wide receivers that finish near the top of the playerprofiler.com quality score. They command a huge target share, and they're efficient with their targets. Straightforward. Consensus top five wide receivers. And then I followed that up with two quarterbacks, because you have to get good quarterback play in the Scott Fishbowl. The structure of the league is a hierarchy, where individual 12-man leagues feed a larger conference, which then feeds an overarching championship in week 12. I won my 12-man division 
moved on to the conference championships and just missed moving on to the final championship week last season. And I did that by going zero RB, while a lot of other people were going zero RB, I might add. This year, no one was going zero RB because essentially it's standard scoring with an extra quarterback. So there's not a lot of room to go zero RB in this format. But I should have taken advantage of the value at wide receiver throughout this draft, and I didn't. Once I had Odell Beckham Jr. and Julio Jones, I've never had those two wide receivers on a team. Who the hell has ever had OBJ and Julio on the same team? I instantly just forgot about the wide receiver position once I had those two guys. Incredible blunder! Then after I had my quarterbacks wrapped up, I should have gone back to the wide receiver position and continued to accumulate value at that position, but I did not. I started drafting running backs because at the end of the day, this is a standard scoring format with bonuses. It's not PPR. The fact that the Scott Fish Bowl is not PPR is the most important aspect of the format. It's not the additional one and a half points per first down bonus that tight ends receive. No, it's the fact that wide receivers can't compete with running backs and quarterbacks or tight ends for that matter, because there's no point per reception. So what did I do? I went running back heavy in the middle part of the draft. Dalvin Cook, Tevin Coleman, and the big blunder, Spencer Ware. Spencer Ware was a catastrophic pick. I picked him just before I talked to Warren Sharp. <laughs> it was just so perfect. And it was a blunder based on opportunity cost because I could have had Eric Ebron. Eric Ebron, incredible upside out of the tight end position. That's the guy I should have drafted. If you can get a tight end that potentially commands 110, 120 targets in a season, in this format, you're getting two and a half points per first down. Eric Ebron is going to outscore a lot of the good receivers in the league. And I'm out here drafting Spencer fucking Ware. And I realized that the moment Eric Ebron went off the board, I smacked my forehead and I thought, oh, what have I done? What have you done, Matt Kelly? Because I didn't need to draft Eric Ebron. I did not need to do that. Why? Because in this format, the PPR backs, the satellite backs, the target magnet backs are undervalued. At FF underscore Bugazi sorted the running backs by first down percentage last year. On a per-touch basis, Mike Gillisley, James White, Bilal Powell, Rex Burkhead, Ty Montgomery, Tevin Coleman, Chris Thompson, Derrick Henry, Theo Riddick, and Darren Sproles were converting first downs at the highest rate per touch. That tells you the satellite back has some additional value in a league that you would think without PPR as a benefit would cripple the satellite back. Not true. That's why I drafted Tevin Coleman, who essentially is a satellite back plus for the Atlanta Falcons. And that's why I drafted Danny Woodhead as my fourth running back. And Theo Riddick was available later. And Bilal Powell was available later. And James White was available so much later. Should have gone zero RB. When you're thinking about draft concepts, your initial reflex reaction should be to go against the grain, not to get in on the runs. When you see a run happening, that's a good thing. If you see a run happening and you didn't start the run, it's too late in a draft. Let the run happen and go somewhere else. 
But I saw a run on running backs, and I thought, I got to get a running back. It's a standard format. I can't not have a running back. I need to draft Spencer Ware here. I was going to draft Ty Montgomery, but he was gone. So many running backs flying off the board. I needed one. I just felt I needed one. I was the sucker in that draft room. The guy that was the last to get the asset at a particular position once a run closed. I wasn't drafting with a clear head, and I wasn't drafting with a strategy that went beyond round four. I had a strategy through round four, and then, ah, whoops. At least I got Danny Woodhead. But I would love my team so much more if it were stacked with wide receivers, elite wide receivers, and featured running backs from Tevin Coleman to Danny Woodhead to Theo Riddick to Bilal Powell to James White to Giovanni Bernard. Giovanni Bernard is going way too late because you see the breaking news. Cincinnati Bengals coach Marvin Lewis believes that running back Joe Mixon is off the charts talent-wise. But we knew that already. Go to playerprofiler.com, scroll down to the media section, and there you can listen to my analysis of Joe Mixon, where I call him the most talented running back in the 2017 class, and it's not even close. If you put Ezekiel Elliott and Le'Veon Bell in a chamber shut the door, opened it back up, smoke and vapor wafting into the air, out steps Joe Mixon. At 6'1", 228, Joe Mixon ran a 4'5 flat. That's a 111.2, 91st percentile speed score. And he was average or above in burst and agility and upper body strength. And he was an exceptional receiver out of the backfield at Oklahoma. On the Sonic Truth Podcast, we are going to talk a lot about the upcoming 2018 running back class. Joe Mixon looks like one of those 2018 running backs. A big, explosive, and athletic running back who's also fluid in space with great hands. You can't say that about Christian McCaffrey. He's not big enough. You can't say that about Leonard Fournette. He's not agile enough. He's not the receiver Joe Mixon is. Joe Mixon was the class of this draft class. So I get Joe Mixon. I love Joe Mixon. Joe Mixon is an incredibly talented player. And those with access to playerprofiler.com have known this for a long time. Now, mainstream football fans are getting caught up, not by going to playerprofiler.com, but by taking a shortcut, just taking Marvin Lewis's word for it. Sometimes the coaches are right, sometimes they're wrong when they're talking about a player's athleticism. In this case, Marvin Lewis is correct. Joe Mixon's great. It's irrefutable. But so is Giovanni Bernard. So as Joe Mixon continues to rise up draft boards with every coach quote, Giovanni Bernard's draft stock will continue to fall and fall and fall. He's now going in the double-digit rounds. It's conceivable by the end of August, Giovanni Bernard is going in the final rounds of fantasy football drafts. And that's the player I want to draft. The player who is being latently depressed by coach quotes. Do you think Marvin Lewis is going to apologize to Giovanni Bernard for nuking his fantasy football ADP? Yeah, hey, Gio, I wanted to talk to you for a minute. Really sorry about what I did to your fantasy football ADP. I hear you're going in the 16th round now. Anything I can do to make it up to you? Uh, no thanks, coach. I don't really care about fantasy football. But if you want to make it up to me, give me more touches because I deserve more touches. Because each and every season, Giovanni Bernard posts efficient 
efficiency metrics. 5.2 yards per touch last year, top 30 in the NFL. Year before that, 5.9 yards per touch, 14th in the NFL. So he's been producing efficient numbers year in, year out. And he's become even more involved in the passing game. In 2015, only 3.1 receptions per game. Last year, 3.9 receptions per game. That's how Giovanni Bernard posted 12.3 fantasy points per game with an opportunity share under 50%. That's the beauty of Giovanni Bernard. He can be a flex option even though he's receiving a fraction of the touches. This is why we like Theo Riddick. This is why we like Danny Woodhead. The satellite backs get to receive the ball out in space away from the biggest, most ferocious defenders, and they have to beat one guy to go get a first down. Life is easier when you're catching passes out of the backfield. Warren Sharp talked about this on the last show. He wants the Kansas City Chiefs to help Spencer Ware get him involved in the passing game on first and second down. That would be a rational play-calling tactic if you're the Kansas City Chiefs. We're hoping the Carolina Panthers focus on calling those plays for Christian McCaffrey, but we already know the Bengals like to call those plays for Giovanni Bernard, just like we already know the Lions like to call those plays for Theo Riddick, and the Patriots like to call those plays for James White, and we know the Ravens will be calling those plays for Danny Woodhead. But I don't have the opportunity to load up on satellite backs in the Scott Fish Bowl because I was too busy following the herd in my quest toward mediocrity instead of going against the grain. You win in fantasy football by going against the grain, even when it doesn't feel right, when it feels so wrong. It's so wrong to not have a running back yet. It's so wrong to continue to not draft a quarterback in a single quarterback league into the double digit rounds it just feels so wrong but at the end of the day at the end of the season when you're winning the championship it's so right oh it's so right it's the move and even me who talks about this incessantly who yells at people about it every week on social media in front of this microphone, I myself had an opportunity to heed my own advice. And what did I do? I cowered. I fell in line with the herd and started drafting running backs like a mark. And when fantasy analysts like J.J. Zacharyson come on the show and they talk about game theory, that's what they mean when they talk about game theory. Game theory means you are helped by the collective moves of your opponents. Because that's what game theory is all about. Understanding how the choices made by your opponents can be leveraged to help you. How can a run on running backs help you? That's the question I should have been asking. Not, how do I get another running back? Quick, 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 quick. Hurry, 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 hurry. I might not get enough running backs. Oh, no. Spencer Ware, Spencer Ware. Get him. Ah! Bye, Matt Kelly. Because as your opponents are drafting running backs, they are preventing themselves from drafting more running backs later. They're filling their dedicated running back slots on their roster early. That means there will still be running backs available, but they will last much longer because so many teams decided to load up on running backs early. 
all the more incentive for you to not load up on running backs if the majority of your league mates are loading up on running backs. This is why contrarian drafting works so well. What's Sean Siegel's Twitter handle? The FF Contrarian. Because every fantasy team has a set number of slots, right? You can't only draft running backs. You have to also draft quarterbacks to fill the quarterback slots and wide receivers to fill the wide receiver slots and tight ends to fill the tight end slots. Knowing that no matter what your opponents are running out to do now, they eventually have to backfill their team with all types of positions. Means that you can accumulate great value early by focusing on the position that is underappreciated. In the case of the Scott Fishbowl, it was wide receiver. And then you can continue to wait and wait and wait and wait. And the underappreciated running backs can be drafted much later as well, like Giovanni Bernard and Shane Vereen and Theo Riddick. On and on and on and on. This is how I won the league last year. Look at my draft from last year. How the hell did you get Spencer Ware in the 16th round? Well, everyone filled up on running backs early, and I continue to wait on running backs, and running backs that in a normal league would have been drafted in round... 12 were lasting until round 16 because everyone had to go back and retroactively fill their wide receiver slots and tight end slots and quarterback slots while I was the only one in a given round drafting running back. That's the ideal. If you look back at a draft and you were the only one drafting wide receivers in a particular round, and you were the only one drafting a quarterback in a particular round, and you were the only one drafting a wide receiver in a particular round, and you were the only one drafting a tight end in a particular round, you were doing it right. You just won your league because it doesn't matter what the format is. The fundamental tenets of zero RB will never change. The running back position is more fragile and volatile than any other positions. The tight end position is more physically fragile than any other position. Tight end injury rates are higher than any other position. You can look at my draft and you can see where I lost my fucking mind. Because I started with an anti-fragile roster of wide receivers and quarterbacks. And then I just ripped off my shirt and I started running around the neighborhood. Painting my face with my own shit. Why? Nobody knows! Because you can push and pull and tweak the format as much as you want. You can't change the inherent traits of the positions. So in those rounds where I looked up and thought, God, I'm a fool! But you're not a fool if you launch a Dynasty League on Reality Sports Online. In fact, members of the patron community, go to Patreon, search Podfather, join the underworld. Members of the audience are organizing listener leagues on their own. I was organizing listener leagues earlier in the year, and then I couldn't keep up with the demand for listener leagues. And now we're seeing new listener leagues spawn from the Patreon forums without my involvement at all. It's a beautiful thing to watch because I cannot be in another league. You can already tell that I'm losing my mind in the Scott Fish Bowl. You don't want me in more leagues, but you don't need me anymore. The patrons are all grows up. And when you go to Patreon and you get together with other listeners to start a league, the majority want to start a league on Reality Sports Online because Reality Sports Online provides a more sophisticated experience for the fantasy gamer where you bid on players and then you assign them with flexible contracts. So the league I'm in, I have AJ Green on a one-year deal. I have Tevin Coleman on a two-year deal. I very randomly have CJ Fedorowicz on a four-year deal. Don't 
ask me how that happened. But bidding on contracts with varying lengths brought an exciting new dynamic to a dynasty startup draft. Reality Sports Online also has bidding on free agents. All of the advanced functionality that fantasy gamers that want to take the Dynasty League experience to the next level is available on Reality Sports Online. Go there now, type in the promo code UNDERWORLD, and get a 10% discount when you buy your league. So to recap, I'm a fool, the patrons are smart, and Clinton Portis is not a fool. I refuse to call Clinton Portis a fool, but that's what he's being called. ESPN's John Keem wrote an in-depth profile of Clinton Portis's life after football, and it was interesting. Some people would call it heartbreaking. I would call it interesting because for some reason, I can't feel empathy for Clinton Portis. He went from being the highest paid running back in the league to bankruptcy. And 99 times out of 100, I feel bad for that person. I empathize with that person every time. Clinton Portis's management embezzled funds from him and beyond that, invested funds in their friend's Ponzi scheme, which inevitably made its way back to the fraudulent managers. Clinton Portis testified against them, but it was too late. His money was gone, and he found himself in a parking lot outside a building where he thought one of his former managers worked, and he was waiting for him with a gun. That's the state that Clinton Portis found himself in. He was depressed and desperate, and if you show me a depressed, desperate person, I will almost always find empathy with that person. You read this story about Clinton Portis, and the details are salacious, but I just could not tap into the humanity of it. The Clinton Portis story is very common. Athlete signs a contract for over $50 million, doesn't know what to do with the money, and through word of mouth is introduced to a manager with credentials. Clinton Portis' management team was sanctioned by the NFL Players Association, and then that management team embezzled money from Portis through intermediaries like the Ponzi scheme or just directly withdrawing money from Clinton Portis's account directly. Like they did that. It was brazen, brazen fraud committed against this man. His former managers are criminals and they deserve to be prosecuted. But I don't understand why athletes are handing over control of their fortunes to managers in the first place. I don't understand the concept. I just don't. What I know about Clinton Portis is he always had to have the most cars, the biggest house. He was the poster child for extravagant spender who you knew one day would end up broke. He was addicted to spending. He admits this. Just like Johnny Depp admits this. They're addicted to consumption. Johnny Depp makes tens of millions of dollars for every movie, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars on the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, and he will be broke in 10 years the way he spends money, buying houses and islands and throwing parties that cost millions of dollars. Clinton Portis's management siphoned away millions, but Clinton Portis himself extravagantly spent tens of millions. And I think when Clinton Portis is sitting in his car in that parking lot, I actually don't think he's as mad at his manager as he is himself. That's why he didn't go through with it. Because he knew in the deepest recesses of his mind, I fucked up. That's why I just could not view this story as heartbreaking. It's a cautionary tale for sure. But it's a cautionary tale for any wealthy person to take control of their own finances. And the argument is, oh, well, professional athletes 
have so many demands, they don't have time to learn about managing their money. And that's simply not true. And I am an athlete apologist. I always, first and foremost, try to find the athlete's perspective and view the situation with empathy. Always. Ladarius Green, Cam Newton, Josh Gordon, go down the line of NFL players we've talked about on this show. I can see how they find themselves in unfair situations and I show empathy. But why are you handing over tens of millions of dollars to a money manager with no accountability? I just don't understand how that's something anyone does because I know people that make tens of millions of dollars and none of them have money managers because it doesn't matter how much money's in your account. It's just an extra zero. You manage it the same way I would manage it or anyone. You go and you learn what an S&P index fund is and you invest in the most popular S&P 500 index fund. That's the easiest way to invest in stocks without having to put much thought into the exercise. Yes, I understand you're playing football and during the season, during training camp and preseason, you have to focus every waking hour on the task at hand, on your profession. You have a very limited window in which to make your money five to 10 years. If you're Clinton Portis, you have to make the most of it. But in the off season in January, because... Washington wasn't making the playoffs most years. You need to sit down and learn just some basic tenets of money management, and you can just manage your own money. You just set up a transfer from your bank account to an investment account, and you can divide up $10 million across four different investment vehicles and be hedged and limit your risk managing your portfolio conservatively. It's really not that hard. And then you have to choose the schedule on which you send money to your investment account. That means not spending lavishly. That's it. You do those two things. A money manager never has access to it. And you ensure that a percentage of your earnings is invested essentially in a trust that will fund your lifestyle into perpetuity. And you can learn how to do that in less than 10 hours with an online course. And I'm confident that every football player can do that. A lot of football players are super smart. They have to be. I just don't understand why so many, not just football players, just individuals, are scared of money. Money scares people. They think it's complicated. It's not. They think managing larger sums of money makes it more complicated. It's not. It's just an extra zero or three. But I look at this Clinton Porter story with no judgment on either side. I just read it and think, that's interesting. That happened. But I feel bad that I don't feel bad. And I think it's because... Clinton Portis may be better off. Sometimes once you've lost your material possessions, you become happier. I genuinely believe some people subconsciously try to spend it all because they're happier working from ground zero. Clinton Portis is a talented human being. He has a lot of potential to use his imagination and reform himself into anything that he may want to be from this point forward. That's exciting. I've been there. I've done that. And I think he will be successful. And for that reason, I refuse to pity him.
Attention, attention, attention all minions and buzzards, those of you that made it past the outro. I have an announcement. Playerprofiler.com is currently looking for game analysts, individuals that would like to chart games, contested catches, evaded tackles, under-pressure throws, and a lot more. Email me, rotounderworld at gmail.com, if you're interested in becoming a Roto Underworld game analyst. You will be responsible for the metrics on playerprofiler.com. We pay $20 to $25 a game, depending on your responsibility, and you're only responsible for one game a week. Give me a shout.